How does the church function as light in the darkness? That's what we've been looking at. And what we're gonna see in this letter is a little bit of a, it's not a shift, but this letter takes on a little bit more of a personal tone um, to darkness. Not just darkness of a church in general, but the darkness that can creep into individual hearts. In many ways, this is a letter about church revival, but church revival starts where? With individual revival. How many times have you had this conversation? Maybe from your own heart uh, or from somebody who you're speaking to. When you ask, how are you doing? How are you doing spiritually? And there's an answer that goes something like this. I'm dry. I feel spiritually dry. I don't have motivation to pray. I don't have much motivation to read my Bible. I feel like I'm going through the motions. And yet, while that is true, my life is going pretty well. I'm having decent success at work. My, my family at least seems to be okay, and I'm just kind of marching along. But spiritually, I am dry. There's just darkness. How many of you could say that this morning? Of Maybe where you find yourselves at a heart level. Jesus understands that, he sees it, and he writes a letter to address it. To answer the question, how do you experience personal revival? When you find yourself in a spiritually dark place, when you find yourself in a spiritually dead place, how do you experience revival? In this letter, Jesus has four very strong commands that we're gonna explore because they get at the heart of what it means to experience revival. Wake up, remember, keep or guard, and repent. Let's start with wake up. Verse two, wake up and strengthen what remains. Now, what does this mean? Well, let's set some context here. Look at the end of verse one. What does Jesus say about a vast majority of these people in the church in Sardis? He says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So he's describing some people that have, at least from the outside, a reputation of being alive, but they're dead. And what we see here, probably of what was happening in Sardis, is that you had a group of people in the church that had so accommodated themselves to the culture that they were free from the persecution that we've seen in these letters. Remember, there was tremendous pressure to, to worship Caesar as Lord. And for those that said, no, we're gonna worship Christ as Lord, there was persecution. What we find here in Sardis is probably a group of people that had just kind of gone along with the culture, worshiping Caesar as Lord, at least maybe not worshiping him, but being a part of the religious festivals, therefore being a part of the, the business groups and the trade guilds. And they were probably people that were having some degree of success in Sardis because they were really just blending in with the pagan religion and what was happening in the Caesar worship. They were probably having some success in business. Maybe they were being promoted to some leadership positions in the trade guilds and, uh, and maybe even within the city. 
having some success. And so the reputation of being alive was people outside the church looking at them and going, wow, these are successful people. This church must be alive. Look at the lives of these people. And so the, the status and the influence combined with probably financial status is what prompted them to have this reputation among outsiders. And yet what Jesus notes is that when you got past the glitz and the glamour of the outside, there was a very much an absence of dynamic faith inside. How many of you are familiar with uh, kit cars? You know what I'm talking about? They are the, uh, kit cars are the full-size models of fancy sports cars that you can buy in a kit and assemble yourself. They're very reasonable cost-wise. In fact, if you go on eBay now, you could buy a, a Lamborghini for about $3,000, okay, as a kit car. You can build it yourself. Have, now, have you ever pulled up next to a kit car at a stoplight? It's quite an experience. You pull up next to this shiny red Ferrari, and you're wowed by it. And then the light turns green and the wow changes quite a bit because what you hear is almost like a lawnmower engine sputtering off the line. That there's this, there's this shine on the outside, but there's nothing under the hood. That's what Jesus is, is critiquing the people in Sardis for. That there's all this activity on the outside, but when you get underneath the hood, inside the heart, there's nothing you ever had the experience where you meet with someone and you're, you're longing to gain some wisdom from this person that you see as walking with Christ and having a deep spiritual walk with Christ? They're successful. Uh, they, they're church attending. They're in a weekly Bible study. Um, their family seems to be doing really well. Uh, they, everything seems to be there spiritually. And so you're looking forward to this meeting and you sit down with them and after an hour when you leave, you leave disappointed because there was all the right answers, but there was, there was no evidence of a living, active, dynamic relationship with the Lord. Now, let me flip the table. Have you ever been on the opposite side of that where somebody has come to you because they wanna meet with you because they see that successful, put together, church going, maybe even somewhat in church leadership or serving in a leadership team or leadership level, and, and they want to glean off of you, and you sit down with them, and they start asking you questions, and you're scrambling. Because underneath the surface, you know there's just nothing there. There's not an active, living, dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ. So you find yourself having to put up some sort of facade that will get you through this one-hour appointment but get you out of it because there's nothing underneath the hood that there's a spiritual just deadness, darkness. To this, Jesus says, wake up. And the phrase there, wake up, it means to be alert. So the question becomes, what? What is Jesus wanting us to be alert to? The key is in verse two. He says, 
wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Strengthen what remains. You know what that means? That at one time, these believers in Sardis, right, had a dynamic relationship with Christ where they were walking with Christ. But over time, what had been a, a burning fire, right, of spirituality became a pile of ashes with a, a tiny ember at the bottom of the ashes. And Jesus says, strengthen, fan the flame of that ember or it's gonna go out. Does that reflect your life at all? Just a, a pile of spiritual ashes with, with some ember burning somewhere deep down in the corridor of your heart. Here's what Jesus is saying. Be alert to what is happening on the inside of your heart. Even when everything on the outside Spiritual activity, success, maybe accolades seems to be going well. He's alerting us to this, that there can be a dangerous gap that grows between outward spiritual activity and inward heart condition. And that gap can grow and grow and grow to the point that you arrive at this place where people say there's a reputation of you being spiritually alive, but inside there is deadness. See, the danger is this. You can have all the spiritual activities in place. You can have faithful Sunday church attendance. You can have a weekly Bible study or a weekly community group. You can even be serving on a ministry team. All those activities can be in place, and you can be dead on the inside. And Jesus is saying, be alert to that. There's a real dynamic, that dangerous gap that can begin to grow between outward and inward reality. You know, at some point you wake up, and maybe some of you are there now. You wake up and say, if they only knew the real me. <laughs> if they only knew that inside there is nothing going on, that there is just spiritual deadness. The reality is that that is where you will end up without trying. That's the natural default of the sinful human heart. Apart from effort, that's where you will end up, a pile of ashes with one glowing ember somewhere in the bottom. Right? A campfire does not remain uh, or continue to burn unless it's stoked and tended to. And so Jesus is saying, be alert. Spiritual revival starts with just an alertness to that dynamic that can grow in the heart. Second, how do you experience spiritual revival? By remembering. Okay, verse three, remember then what you received and heard. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? What did they receive and hear that he's asking them to remember? Is it the gospel? Sure, is it the content of the gospel? Absolutely, but I don't think that's where Jesus is specifically driving here and what he's talking about. Every one of these letters, if you've noticed so far, at the beginning of the letter has a short description of Jesus that comes from chapter one that contains the full description of Jesus. And in every letter, the introductory self-description of Jesus is suited for the condition of the church and what they need. And that's the case here. 
Notice how Jesus introduces himself in verse one. He says the words of him, who has the seven spirits of God? Now, what are the seven spirits or who are the seven spirits of God? Well, over in chapter one, verse four, the seven spirits are spoken of in connection with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ, and they're very close to the throne. Therefore, we can safely assume that the seven spirits are the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. Seven being completeness, that the seven spirits, the Holy Spirit is complete for these seven churches, but for the global church. And what Jesus is saying, therefore, is remember the gift of the Holy Spirit that you received. Now, this makes sense, too, because the church finds themselves dead. And we know that the only way that deadness can be removed, that life can come, is through the Spirit. Look at the scriptures from the start to finish in Genesis chapter one, the spirit hovering over the waters and bringing order and creative life to the world. Adam, the spirit breathing life into Adam's inanimate body that was made out of the dust of the ground. Then in Ezekiel, you have the spirit bringing life to the valley of dry bones. Then at Pentecost in Acts chapter two, the spirit bringing conviction and life and cutting to the heart of men and women that they would respond to the gospel. It's the spirit that brings life to a slumbering soul. Sound doctrine on its own cannot bring life to a soul. Understand what I'm saying there. Gospel, sound gospel content alone cannot bring life to a soul, right? Orthodoxy, sound doctrine can be dead sometimes because content alone doesn't change the heart and breathe life into it. Give you an example of this. Remember in Luke 24, right? The road uh, to Emmaus. Remember the two followers of Christ that were walking towards the village of Emmaus from Jerusalem. And they're walking along and they're talking about what just happened. Jesus had just died. And remember what it says, Jesus came alongside of them. He just kind of walks up next to him, says, what's going on? And the scriptures say that they were, they were blinded to who he was, right? So they couldn't recognize who he was. And they're like, you haven't heard this. And he said, well, tell me. And so in Luke 24, they start to tell Jesus about himself. It's a fascinating story. They say he was, Jesus was a mighty prophet who was condemned to death and crucified. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel that the prophets spoke about. It's been the third day, Keith, third day since he died. Some women went to the tomb and they didn't find his body. But then an angel appeared to him and told him that he was alive. So then we went to the tomb and we confirmed it. What's the problem then? They still didn't believe. They still were in the dark spiritually. In fact, Jesus says to them, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. They had what the prophets had spoken of. They had the facts in front of them. And they still couldn't make sense of it. They were still in unbelief. So what did they need? 
Jesus says to him, or in the beginning, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then it says their eyes were opened. They didn't open their eyes, right? It's passive. Their eyes were opened. And then they said to one another, listen to this. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? The word for burn there means to ignite. They had all the facts. They had the content and they needed Jesus Christ to ignite their soul to come alive with the content that was before them. Jesus is saying, remember the gift of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is the one that brings life. Now that word remember, this is important. It doesn't just mean nostalgia. It doesn't, he's not just telling them, hey, remember back in that day when you were alive in Christ? No, the word remember means to keep thinking about something in such a way that it causes you to act upon it. That's what remember means. To think about it in such a way and to keep thinking about it in such a way that it causes you to act upon it. So the question becomes, how do you remember the gift of the Holy Spirit and act upon it? And that brings us to our third point. And the third way that Jesus brings revival to a soul Verse three, remember then what you received and heard, keep it. The word keep here means to guard. What Jesus is telling them is to guard the gift of the Holy Spirit, to guard the deposit of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.14 says the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. That word guarantee means down payment. Jesus is saying, guard the down payment. Proverbs 4, 23, keep or guard your heart with all vigilance for for, for from it flow the springs of life. And then 1 Corinthians 6, 19, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. Put all those together and what we hear is this. The Holy Spirit dwells within you The Holy Spirit is a down payment or an assurance of all that God has promised you in Christ. So guard it. Keep it. It looks like this, or think of it this way. If the soul alive is a a burning fire, then the Holy Spirit is the wind or the oxygen that keeps that fire burning. And a fire will not continue to burn if it doesn't have a fresh supply of oxygen. That's how a fire continues to burn. I've got a a big green egg. You all know what a big green egg is. Um, if, If you're a horrible griller, get a big green egg and instantly you become an amazing Hall of Fame griller. It's an amazing apparatus. That was my testimony with the big green egg. I was not a good griller, I get the big green egg and suddenly meat comes off having this amazing taste and I have nothing to do with it other than to get the temperature right in this big green egg. Here's how it works. It's a big green uh, ceramic container. 
In the middle is the grill rack, and there's two vents, one on the bottom, one on the top. And if you open these vents wide open so that much air can flow through, you can get this grill well past 600 degrees. It's very hot. If you, if you tighten the vents down, you can actually grill at a very low temperature, like 200 degrees for a long time. So you control the temperature with these vents. Whenever I grill, when I'm done, I completely close the vents. And within a couple of hours, there's no more fire. The embers are cold. Why? Because the, the oxygen supply has been completely cut off. When Jesus says, guard the deposit of the Holy Spirit in you, what he is saying is this. Keep the vents open to your soul so that the Holy Spirit can breathe life into your soul. You say, what are the vents? <laughs> I'm gonna give you four that I think are absolutely critical. The word of God, prayer, worship, and gospel community. Those are the vents through which the Holy Spirit breathes or blows life into your soul. And Jesus is saying, guard them. Keep them open. Guard your time in the word. Interesting, while gospel content or sound doctrine itself cannot bring you life, note what Jesus does in Luke 24 with those two disciples. He ignites their hearts, but how does he do it? Through the scriptures. That Jesus ignites your heart through his word. So he says, guard it. Guard your time in the word. Keep that vent open. Guard your time in prayer. Guard your time in, in Sunday worship. Guard your time in gospel community. Here's the reality. Because of our fallen nature, because of the natural default of the sinful human heart, those vents have retractable springs on them. They, they function like a door that you push open and it closes. They, they function like a sliding glass door that maybe has a spring on it. You open it, and if you let go, it slowly closes. That that's what will happen if you aren't actively keeping those vents open. That if you let them close, gospel community vent will close and you will turn to isolation. That if you don't keep the vent of prayer open, you will turn to worry, anxiety, and self-reliance. That if you don't keep uh, the vent of worship, of corporate worship open, your heart will turn to idolatry. That if you don't keep the vent of, of, of gospel community open, that you will turn to isolation. And what we learn here is that if you fail to guard one or all of these vents, that you will extinguish or that you will quench the Holy Spirit. That's what 1 Corinthians 5.19 says, that you can quench the Holy Spirit, which means that if you let those vents close, that you can extinguish the Spirit and find yourself in a place that's described here in this letter to the church in Sardis. So how do you experience personal spiritual revival? Jesus says, wake up, be alert to that dangerous gap that can grow between your spiritual activity outwardly and the inward condition of your heart. 
He says, remember the gift of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit is the one that breathes life and guard the deposit of the Spirit. Keep the vents open of word, prayer, gospel, community, worship, so that the Spirit can do his work of bringing life. And then finally, repent. Verse three, remember then what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. Now, repentance is absolutely critical to spiritual renewal, to spiritual revival. It's at the foundation of it. Why? Well, the answer is in verses four to five of this letter. It says, there were a few in Sardis who had not soiled their garments. That word soil, it appears in other parts of the scripture as either soil or stain, and it refers to the pollution of idolatry. It refers to the pollution of looking to something or someone else for the satisfaction that only Jesus Christ can bring. That's what idolatry is. And so Jesus says, repent. Well, what is repentance? Verse five, the one who conquers. We've explored this a little bit. It shows up in repeated letters. The one who conquers Ultimately, Jesus is the one who conquers, Romans chapter eight. He's the one who has conquered sin, has conquered death, has conquered everything. He has the victory. We sang about it. And when we repent, turn from self to Jesus, we become little sea conquerors, walking with him. That's what repentance is, is turning and walking with Jesus. And when we do that, our hearts are realigned to God's promises, that are spoken of in verse five. And there's three amazing promises that Jesus gives to his people to say, if you will repent and realign your heart with my promises, they're amazing. Look at promise number one in verse five. He says, you will be clothed in white garments. You will be clothed in white garments. What does that mean? It's referring to Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. The promise is that when you repent and turn from your sin and turn to Jesus, that he clothes you with his robe of righteousness, his sinless standard, his perfect standard. Promise number two says, Jesus will never blot your name out of the book of life. That phrase, book of life, appears five times in the book of Revelation. And it refers to, as in chapter 13, verse eight, it refers to a salvation that was determined before the foundations of the world. In other words, before you had a chance to enter this world and sin, your salvation was secured. Promise number three says, Jesus will confess you before his father. Boy, this is a sweet one. You know what this says? There's two aspects to it. One, on judgment day, when Jesus returns and you stand before God in judgment and your sin is laid out, you've got an advocate in Jesus, not an accuser, that will say to the Father, Father, I've covered that, I've covered that, I've covered that, I've covered that, I have covered all of her sins, she's mine, she's covered. And the scriptures say until he returns that Jesus now is confessing you before his Father all the time interceding on your behalf, 
Father, I've covered that. I've covered that. I paid for that when I died on the cross. Now, what's the common denominator between all of these promises? That your salvation does not depend on your performance. It does depend on your perseverance. It's what these letters have been about. It does depend on your perseverance, which is just to say that you will confess Jesus till the end, that you'll confess and repent till the end, but it does not depend on your performance. Richard Lovelace, in his classical book on revival, it's called uh, Dynamics of Spiritual Life. He writes this. The foundation for personal and continuous revival is a life built on the foundation of acceptance in Christ alone apart from your performance. So how do you experience personal spiritual revival? Jesus says, be alert to that dangerous gap that can grow between your outward spiritual activity and your inward heart condition. He says, remember the gift of the Spirit. The Spirit alone brings life, right? Through various vents, the Word of God, prayer, worship, community, gospel community. And therefore, guard, guard those vents, guard the deposit of the Holy Spirit, and live a life of repentance where your heart is realigned to these three amazing promises in verse five. Jonathan Edwards, he was instrumental in the revival in the 1700s in the American colonies. The Great Awakening is what it was called when, when the gospel uh, moved like wildfire from New England across the colonies. And Jonathan Edwards was a, a catalyst by his preaching, right, and his teaching and all he was doing for this, this massive spiritual revival. Well, we have some of Jonathan Edwards' personal diaries, and what you see is that the, the massive revival of the churches across New England and further across the colonies started with the revival in one man's soul. And that's why, as we've talked about this, revival at a church level only happens when there's revival at individual levels. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards writes in his, his diary, speaking of his own personal revival. I had an inward, sweet sense of these things, and my soul was led away in pleasant views and contemplations of the loveliness and sweetness of Jesus Christ. The sense I had of divine things would often kindle up a sweet burning in my soul that I know not how to express. The heaven I desired was a heaven of holiness, to be with God and to spend my eternity in divine love and holy communion with Christ. Let's pray. Father, there are many in this room who are in the midst of spiritual drought right now, who feel dry, who feel unmotivated to read the word, who feel unmotivated to pray, maybe even unmotivated to come to church once a week. 
Father, we know that only your spirit brings life and only your spirit can awaken a slumbering soul. And so we plead with you, Father, this morning that you would send your spirit to awaken souls that the one ember that sits at the bottom of a pile of spiritual ashes would be, would be stoked and would grow warm again into a burning fire. And I pray and we pray for those in this room that the vents would be opened. The vent to your word and to prayer and to community and to worship would be opened so that your spirit can do what only your spirit can do to bring life and that as our hearts come to life again, that we would be filled with a joy, with a burning of the soul. We see in Luke 24 that we hear from Jonathan Edwards that, that we would be filled with a, a burning that is from your spirit that we can't explain, but that ignites us to worship you, to love you, to share you. And as we close in worship now, would you, Holy Spirit, blow through the caverns of our soul? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.